0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Today on Conversations, it's another in our series of stories of when things didn't work out quite as planned, just like 2020 is doing. Today, my guest is Zenith Virago. Zenith is a death walker. That means she accompanies people who are dying and helps their family and friends learn how to do that too. Zenith is part of the natural death movement, which is designed to demystify dying and help bring the process out of institutions and back into ordinary life. The way that Zenith came to this work, evolved after her own life, took some unexpected turns. Hi, Zenith. Hey, Sarah. Can we start with that magnificent name, Zenith Faragga, because you sound like a superhero. Is it the name (laughs) that you were given at birth? It
0: isn't. I changed it when I was 27, when I moved to Byron Bay, and I changed everything else in my life, and I thought, right, I might as well change my name. And I looked for names, and I thought, I want a Z name, so I can just sign Zed, which is actually my signature now. And so I found Zenith in the dictionary. And it meant the highest point. But when you get Zen, which is the shortening of that, it's sort of like the nothingness. So I loved that it had that whole, I could be anything from nothing to the highest point. And... I took Virago, because what can you put with Zenith? And Virago is a feminist archetype. It means a woman who holds the combination and qualities of strength, courage and wisdom, which are deemed to be masculine, but are in fact essentially feminine qualities. So we all have them.
1: I can hear a burr of an accent in your voice, Zenith. Where did you grow up? So I'm born in England to very ordinary working class parents
0: in South London. And I feel very grateful every day for those parents because even though they were very ordinary, I grew up with no religion. And uh, they allowed me to be the person that I was. They allowed me to be a sort of rough-and-tumble little girl and they never damaged me in any way, which as I grew and I learned what had happened to other children, both girls and boys, because I thought my childhood was normal. You know, it wasn't super fantastic, but it was certainly fun and playful, free. I had lots of trust and I didn't have damage. And so I'm very grateful for that. Tell me about the headmistress that you had at primary school. So when I was seven, my parents moved from sort of inner London to outer London for a better life. And we moved to this small place called uh, Pollards Hill. And there was a school there. Uh, First of all, they sent me to one school. And after two weeks, I said, can you take me out of this school and send me to that other one? It looks much nicer. I don't like this one. So they did. And and they were very trusting, I think, that I knew what was best for me, which is sort of amazing now at seven, but they did. And so I went to this other school, and the headmistress there was a woman called Jessie Horsburgh, and she eventually got the OBE for her services to education, but she was totally a woman... You know, you can't be ahead of your time, you're a woman of the time, but she was a very great, she loved children and she was a great thinker. Some of the fundamental lessons about life I learned between 7 and 11 because of her, about self-responsibility, um, I became a feminist uh, in that period of time because I was probably the third best soccer player in the school and when they picked the team they didn't pick me and I said to the teacher I said how come I'm not in the team and the guy said to me you're a girl as if that was that's the, or- the explanation and I can remember standing there as a scrawny you know straw-haired sort of kid saying looking at him and thinking to myself Is that really how stupid the world is that they're going to put all my friends, the boys that don't like soccer in that team just because they're boys, not the best person for the job, which is me. And in that moment, I just thought, if this is how the world works, I'm never going to lose because I'm a girl. I don't have to win, but I'm never
1: Going to lose. How did uh, this principal handle you, Zenith, when you were acting up or a bit disgruntled with what was going on in the classroom? It's more about uh, Jessie, the headmistress, who I never called Jessie at that
0: time. But <laughs> um, you know, I really have that thing that everyone's equal. I mean, different between children and adults a little bit. But so she had this. She obviously could see that I was a smart kid, but I had this sort of adventurous boisterous side and that I could go either way because she she was someone who loved children and so she did this amazing thing with me where she said uh, okay so this is what we're going to do if uh, if you're in a class and you're getting a bit bored and you're starting to huff and puff and you know, draw the attention to you, which is what happens with those children, then all you need to do is say that, put your hand up like you used to say when you were going to the toilet, put your hand up and say you want to go to the library. All the staff will let you go and then you can go to the library, find a book, read something that interests you, and when you've settled down or you're ready, just go back to the classroom. And with that, it really taught me about if if you're in a situation that you don't like, you need to take responsibility for yourself and take yourself out of that situation, not disrupt it. And the other thing that she did for me... Was when I passed the 11 plus So for anyone who's English and listening They'll remember that if they're old enough And I didn't believe at 11 In single sex schools So everyone was exce- They probably wanted me to go to grammar Because it was probably good for the school figures Because we were a small working class school And I So said, it was oh. like a selective school The single the sex grammar school that you got is like Sort of like a private school It's the best education available then uh, But for free I'm not sure what it would be here Yes, probably a selective school. And I said I didn't want to go. And so she said, okay, well, if you invite your mum and dad in and we'll sit and talk to them together and you can just tell them how you feel and I'll support you with why it's always a good, you know, with whatever her reasoning was for that. And she did. And I never went to grammar. And in my whole life, it is the only decision that I think if I had two minutes on the side of the road and I was dying, I would look back and think, wonder what would have happened in my life had I gone to the grammar school and you know followed that path but I didn't and if I had two minutes on the side of the road and
1: look back at my life I would say that was a great life yeah you went to the local comprehensive instead how did did. things go for you there uh they went
0: well because I was a sort of my personality type is um is a stand-up for myself but absolutely stand-up for others who are less fortunate for those who don't have a voice and now I understand how um, how difficult childhood had been for some of those children and no wonder they weren't able to speak up for themselves so I was often if anything was unfair I was you know I was on my war horse about that and I, I was fine. I had a great time. You know, I got on well with the girls and boys. I was a sort of leader in our class. And one of the biggest things that happened to me there was a friend of mine. I had two best friends. They were both boys. And one was called Bobby and Steve. And when we were 15, our friend Bobby died due to an accident on the school playing field. He he was arty. He was a bit like John Lennon. He had classes and floaty and musician. And they were messing around. And somehow or other, in those crepe old desert boots that were all the thing in the late 60s, he slipped on a, on the wet grass and pierced his body with the end of the javelin. And they took him away and he went to hospital. It was a local cottage hospital. And they stitched him up and they sent him home. But when Stephen and I finished school that night, we stood outside. And this is an era when kids just walked home from school and you had this whole life that no one knew about in between finishing school and arriving home. And we said to each other, you know, shall we go and visit Bobby? And we decided no, we would let him recover and be with his parents. But when we went to the school the next day in the assembly the headmistress there, who I have to say was chalk and cheese to my other experience, made, stood on the assembly platform and made an announcement. And my memory is she made it very coldly and calmly, which may or may not have been the situation. But she basically said, Bobby Purcell has died overnight, just like that bang. And with that, in the shock of that announcement... I stood up and walked out and all my year stood up and followed me and we were wandering around on the grass outside, you know, what does this mean? For most of us it was the first experience of death of a peer which is very different to death of a grandparent or even a parent and the staff were fantastic that you probably, this is real working class London, they were giving us cigarettes because we were all smoke. you know, we were learning to smoke at 15 and Pouring us cups of black instant coffee. But they were that was the absolute best support because it it wasn't about the cigarettes, it wasn't about the coffee. It just showed us they were in it with us. That and they wanted to take care of us the best way they could. And that they were completely wiping out that line of student and teacher. In that moment we were together. And again, you know, that has been another great lesson for me. Especially now, I work with death and dying. And, yeah, just really seeing that whatever people need. I mean, I sit with people who are dying of lung cancer, who are sitting there smoking, and I think, you know, whatever gets you there. Yeah. Tell me about another boy from that high school, about the head boy. When I was maybe at this, around the same time, actually, probably just after... Uh, and because of one of the lessons that I learned from Bobby's death was that you could be dead by the weekend. So for about two years after that, I had this whole thing of my mum would say, what are you doing, You know, do you want to do this at the weekend? And I was saying, I might be dead by the weekend. And so I've lived my whole life from that point really, again, just like the soccer moment, from that moment with, uh, you know, do it today seize the moment. You could be dead by tomorrow. And that's a real embodied felt experience for me with my friends. So the head boy who was in the year above me, I thought he was pretty, I wouldn't say hot, but interesting. And anyway, we started going out together. I was about 15, just just turned 15, probably. And Anyway, we became a, a couple. He was a really nice guy. Most head boys are, I think, unless you're at private boys' school. But generally they're there because they're a good all-round sort of guy, same as the women. And so we became intimate. And, a- again, incredibly, my parents would let me stay over at his house. We would sleep together, as in having sex at a young age. Um, and everybody knew that was happening we used precautions, as we did in those days. And that was all fine. And, you know, that, that was a mature approach to a teenage thing. And and I remember I was thinking, well, this is much better than lots of my friends who are having to have sex in alleyways and in dark, dingy places, which also gives you the concept that sex is something dirty or sneaky. Whereas for me, you know, we would be there, his dad he lived with his dad. His mother had also left him and his brother. And so his dad was, again, a really nice guy. We would go to the bedroom, spend the night. I would go to school from there the next day. And it taught me that sex was a comfortable experience. I mean, even you've still got all those teething problems and, you know, easing yourself into it. But I certainly didn't have an experience like lots of people did. And that's the attitude that I would take to children so we eventually uh, became pregnant I was uh, 17 and my parents were away and I went to the doctor and the doctor we had our family doctor and he said well it looks like you're pregnant and you've got two options you can lay down and you'll probably keep the baby or you can carry on as you are because I was still playing tennis I was being a 17 year old and running around he said if you carry on like that you'll probably have a miscarriage because I was starting to spot and so I went home and I laid on the couch for two weeks and when my parents came back I told them we were pregnant and they were fine about that because they really liked Richard, he was a nice guy and I think somewhere in that they were also relieved that I wasn't a lesbian because I was certainly showing in my attitudes and my stroppy feminism a lot of the attributes of a lesbian so uh, we got married was was that
1: a given that you'd get married I mean did you just sort of step on that train and that's the next stop I think because
0: I'd missed the opportunity to go to grammar school university was not in my thing but I was also rapacious for life and experience and uh, you know bring it on because I could be dead by the weekend so that has been a guiding it just sits there or even now even now I'm in my 60s and now it's highly like much more (laughs) likely but um, so we got married we had two sons uh, we had a very equal functioning relationship we were probably pretty naive as uh, life skills go but our parents were both very supportive uh, we had a home and our parents loved being grandparents and we got by it and we shared those children equally, much like what's happening now. But we were doing this in the 80s and like I think lots of people were doing that. It's like lo- there were a lot of great men out there who also weren't buying into stereotypes and role playing. So we had two children, Jodie and Todd, and when I got to be about 22... Someone moved into the area, a woman, very different sort of woman to anybody that I'd ever met before, much more experienced, and she had two children, we hung out a lot together, and through her I started to see this whole world that I i sort of didn't know about. But I had spent my entire childhood waiting for my parents to tell me I was adopted because I could not believe that I belonged to them, even though I loved them. But I just was so... I had had all these things that just didn't really fit in that family like adopted children often have. And one day I remember my mum saying, ''Oh, you know, I need to talk to you about something serious.'' And I was like, (laughs) ''Yes, she's going to tell me I'm adopted.'' And, uh, and it was the sex talk <laughs> because um, my mum had lost a friend to abortion, a backstreet abortion, when she was a young 18-year-old woman. And so we talked about sex and pregnancy and she said, you know, if ever you get into trouble, if ever you become pregnant, do never be afraid to
1: tell me. So she didn't reveal that you were adopted after all. No. <laughs> but when this sort of exciting, more experienced woman moves in into your orbit, Zenith, what did you realise?
0: I, well, I remember, for example, some baking naked with her and the children, all the children, and she was happily married, and um, her husband was a nice guy, and but and she was she was probably cultured, uh, which, when you're working class, is something that is not in your orbit. And we went to London to see shows together and her friends. And it was just, it was like someone had drawn back. It's a bit like going overseas when you've lived in Australia and suddenly you go to Europe or Asia. There was sort of like a moment like that. And with that, things started to stir for me on a deep internal place. And, And I wasn't attracted to her at all. But I started to get this feeling that actually, I might, I might actually be a lesbian. And had Richard not come along and we had that whole uh, love and respect for each other, that might have been a path I'd taken anyway. And I had mentioned that to her. I didn't know any lesbians, but I mentioned that to her. And she said, oh, I can take you to a nightclub in London. And I said, oh, God, no, because I'd seen that film, The Killing of Sister George with Beryl Reed <laughs> And Susanna York, which is like archetype or butch uh, femme you know stereotype of of lesbians and I was terrified and I said, no no if it's gonna happen it can just happen in its own way anyway, but once that thought had woken in me, it woke other thoughts also about life the universe, the mystery um, a whole lot of things probably. what what is life about? Especially because I'd experienced that death at a young age. And I just thought, is this, am I cut out for this? And it became very clear that even though I loved the children and I I was a good mother and we were great parents together, that really it wasn't for me. And I thought about it for a while and... And the more I thought, the more questions I got. It was sort of like being on a spiral out into the universe. And I I didn't say much to anybody. I just was really trying to work it out for myself. And I must have got to a certain point in that spiral. And then one night Richard and I were having dinner. And he said, what do you want? Basically, like, like, do you want the salt or the pepper? And I said, actually, I want a divorce. And it was such a, I can remember it so clearly because it was just so left field. And he's like, what? And I said, I don't think I'm cut out for this. You know, we both have the right to be happy. I think I'm a lesbian. We won't be happy together. You know, we, we, we need to really look at this. And we talked about it very calmly, like, very calmly over dinner. I mean, it's sort of unbelievable, but it's true. And we, up until then, we hadn't been fighting. We didn't have any... We had a very bland sort of ordinary, a bit like my parents, actually. And it was very, you know, in the middle. It didn't have highs or lows. It was just sweet. And then we had this conversation and I just really clearly remember him saying, well, if you've got to go, you've got to go. And then we talked about the children and he said he wanted to keep the children. And I said that I would go when the timing was right, that I wouldn't, I didn't, because remember I haven't had a teenagehood. At 17 I'm married with two children and so I didn't have a lot of those skills and so I decided that the best thing to do was stay until I was ready to go, till I'd adjusted to that and we'd all adjusted to that possibility which is what happened. So we lived together for another six months without mentioning anything to anybody, and then something occurred. And I said, "Okay, the time is right. I'm I'm going to buy a round-the-world ticket and I'm going to go away for a year." But really, in that, it wasn't like I'll go for a year and see what happens when we come. But we both knew that it was complete. It would have been a seven-year marriage. It had been a ten-year relationship. And we knew it was complete, but we were in new ground. We, and we were 24, and he was 25. But never said a bad word about him for my entire life, except for he was a little bit dull. But because of that, he was very honourable. He, he kept the children, he raised the children, and he married one of my close friends. They're still together. They've been married for 35 years. They had a child together. So he was happy. How did the kids make sense of your decision? Well, what was I didn't know this at the time, so I kept in contact. But even though I bought a round-the-world ticket for a year, in my naivety, I decided that the longer I stayed away, the better it would be for the children because my parents were still together. And so I didn't come from a home that was, um, you know, divided parents. And so... I just you know that was that was a decision I made, and so I stayed away for fifteen years. I did not return to England. I didn't see anybody. I became this person at that time. and I experienced a lot and grew and but I kept in contact them writing letters, which is what happened, sending things but they were boys and they were busy with their own lives they were they were six and four when I left and so they had they were just about to come into all the excitement of a small life and then a big life and when we reconnected years later, uh, they told me this great story that they told people I was dead because if you tell people you've got a dead mother and you're a small boy, people are just really all over you with care and attention and treats. Whereas if you tell people, oh, my mum left and she's gone to be a lesbian in Australia, <laughs> you, know, you might get curiosity but in working class London, you don't get that.
1: You get "Oh." And so I I feel like I've already been dead in my lifetime. I mean, you're able to talk about it now at the distance of many years and knowing that things have worked out for them and for you. But that moment where you said goodbye and took off on this... Adventure, I mean, were you filled of with ambivalent feelings on the one hand this excitement, on the one hand uh, anxiety about going? what no what was it like? I can't say it was ambivalence, I can't say it was anxiety. I don't know
0: exactly what those feelings were. I probably wasn't capable of assessing them at the time, so I can't um, reflect back on them. But what I do know is that they all came to wave me off. I had I'd sold, I had a Ford Anglia that I'd bought off my grandfather. I sold that for £100. I had a backpack and £100 in my pocket. And I was leaving from Victoria Station to catch a train to go to Europe on the ferry. And they all came. They dropped me off uh, and they all came to wave me off goodbye. So that says something about it. But I think because we hadn't stayed together too long, we hadn't fought and had a hideous, acrimonious Time we weren't resentful, uh, we hadn't fought over the children, and I just thought he really was the best person to raise those children. That I wasn't the best person, and so that was so. I think it was probably a I was sort of probably empty, but I had a deep trust that if this was what my deepest part of me was telling me to do, that that was the right thing to do. And I have to say, for It's now, I was 24, I'm 62, so it's nearly 40 years. I have never felt guilt and I've never felt shame about that decision or the outcome of that decision. And yes, I do have a relationship with both the boys who still live in Europe. But I I just had this trust that things aren't always what they seem. Sometimes you're not the best person. For, the, for that role, and it's better for them to be happy with one parent than it is to be with two who are staying together for the children. This isn't the case for everyone. Everyone has to make their own decision. But what they got was a new parent, a better relationship. They are damaged by that experience, like we're all damaged by our childhoods in some way. But I did make that decision with absolutely the best intention that it was the right decision for me, but it was also the right decision for everyone. And as a naive 24-year-old, that was the best I could do.
1: Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Zenith, after you walked out of your life waving goodbye to your husband, and two young boys. Where did you end up next? I bought a round-the-world ticket to go to New
0: Zealand and then to Peru. And I lived in New Zealand, in Auckland. Where um, did you work when you got to New Zealand? What did you do for a job? I decided that, well, if I really wanted to be a lesbian, I should just get right in there and experience that whole subculture. And in New Zealand, probably one of the sweetest places to do that because of the soreness of the population so there was one gay pub called the Alex Hotel and it had one big bar. So at one end of the room was sort of all the gay guys and at the other end were all the gay women, all the lesbians and dykes. There wasn't any animosity. It wasn't a clear divide. There was a bit of mingling in between. But it was sort of like that's, there was only one space and everyone was <laughs> going to share it. And there was only one nightclub and everyone was going to share it. I went into the bar and I asked for a job. And I said, you know, I've just arrived, I've just become a lesbian. And the woman gave me a job <laughs> and I worked there for the whole six months. And all, all the great women bands of New Zealand at that time in the 80s were playing in that pub. They had a, a, a desk like this, which they served the counter lunches from. But at <laughs> night it became the, for the band. And so they would be standing on this a lot of great women bands who were young and feisty and woman who ran the pub again Elaine she was embracing she took everybody on and she was very similar actually to the headmistress in that way that they were big enough to hold it all and they could see by providing some sort of space with a bit of awareness magic could happen and the pub was fantastic so I left there I went to Sydney I went to stay with a person that I'd met, a guy, Nigel, who I'd met in the pub. He'd come for one night from Sydney. He said, oh, have you ever come to Sydney? Come and stay with me. So I wrote to him and said, hi, I'm coming to Sydney. Does your office still stand? He met me at the airport lived with him for six months in his house in Victoria Street in the Cross. And we are still fast and furious friends and, you know, old friends. There's something so special about old friends. Because when I left England, I left not only my children, my husband, my parents, my life, I left all my friends because what was happening for them was they were just about to get married and have children and here I was, I was like the you know the dark witch of the north. I was seven years ahead of them and this is what the outcome is. So I left everything, but that was fine because I found a new family, I found new friends, I found a new subculture. I worked on Oxford Street in a bar. I was out all night dancing. It was the last summer... Before HIV AIDS really hit, it was starting, but it was really anybody around at that time will remember that last summer where, you know, it's a bit like before you fall off the horse, you know, and you're riding free.
1: One of the men you met when you were living there at the cross was a guy called Johnny Nicholson. What were your feelings towards him? I had this amazing experience with him
0: where I was coming up in Kings Cross Station as we got to the top I was with a girlfriend and she said oh there's Johnny and he turned around and as he turned around I felt this experience that I've never had it again but it was like my whole being or my body was thrown back about six foot like my but of course my body was still there but it's an energetic body and I thought to myself I can't say it now but I was like what was that and Anyway, then I talked to him and you know, we became friends. We were part of a group of people and he was quite a charismatic, flamboyant gay man. Not a, a clone, which was what was happening in the 80s, that look, but lot, a terrible mullet, blonde
1: <laughs> uh, and very flowery and very hippie. Was he drawn to you the way that you were drawn to him in that immediate moment? It was very clear that there was something between us an energy because we, you know how
0: sometimes <laughs> you're attracted to someone and then but you really don't like being attracted to them and so you sort of have this whole, well, don't tell me what to do or things like this, this sort of frictiony thing which I didn't normally have with friends. But anyway, it was sort of a bit like that. Anyway, my visa was running out and I just thought I really have to work this out. So I went to him the day before I flew out and I said, look, I've just got this crazy feeling that I'm in love with you and I don't know what to do with that. And so I said, so let's just have a kiss and see if there's anything in it or, or what. So we had this kiss and I remember thinking, oh, great, don't feel anything, fine. So I left the country and never gave it another thought. I would satisfied that there wasn't that rich chemistry. It didn't have that chemistry at all. So I went back to New Zealand for six months.
1: How did your... And Johnny's paths cross again.
0: So I came after six months. My visa ran out. I went back to uh, Sydney. And then I went with some friends. We travelled up north. By then he'd moved to just outside of Lismore on the north coast. And we travelled up there to see him uh, just for a holiday. And I was like, oh, great, because we were friends. And when I saw him, I just thought, and this is an expression that is not part of my everyday thing. I just thought, I have to have him. I was compelled by something, not my normal way of being in the world. Anyway, we spend the night together. This is all very out there on the <laughs> radio. I wasn't expecting to tell all this so intimately. Anyway, here it is. We spend the night together. And again, there was no sort of chemistry. But uh, it caused an uproar. Caused an uproar with Well, who? because we were, you know, he was a totally flamboyant queen. And I was a really serious, solid butch dyke. <laughs> and this, this is in the 80s. This wasn't now. It's sort of everybody's, you know, anything goes and people exploring. And, and as I left, I said, look, I've got a few weeks coming up. I'll come back and let's just have a quick affair and see so I can get this out of my system. And we had this sort of quick affair for a couple of weeks. And in it, he made this comment, which was, you know, really all I want to do with my life now is learn what a child will teach me. Now, this is the 80s. It's not the, it's not the era of rainbow families. So I said, well, if no one will do that for you, I will do it. But I don't want to co-parent and I don't want to be responsible because I knew I'd already left my other children. And so that I wouldn't become attached and and that that would work for him. He didn't have a partner. He was alone. I said, I'll give you two years of my life. And if we're not pregnant and delivered in that time, it's a no-go. I was 28 and I thought that at 28 I would make a decision between a career and something else but I didn't even know what that something else was. I would now say that that was a deeper, richer life. It took me some years to work that bit out. But by moving to the North Coast, by choosing to have a child for someone else, I took the path. I was already on that step because I was involved in an act of generosity and to create life in order not to own it. But it's not like women who become pregnant and are forced to adopt out their babies for whatever circumstances. Nothing like that at all. And I feel for those women because it must be terrible.
1: Was it straightforward for you to conceive and and to have a baby with him? Yeah, So, but the the fluke was that we fell in love during that six months.
0: That wasn't part of the plan. No, so it wasn't part of the plan. And I wouldn't even let him hold my hand or hold my arm walking down the street, even though he was much more mushy than me, because I didn't want anybody to think we were straight. <laughs> I was really, I was so on it. And... um Anyway, it was hilarious, but it was very, (laughs) because Lisbon was a small town, and so everyone knew what was happening, because he was busy telling everybody, because he was so excited to become a father. It's like having this wild dream, as if you want to fly to the moon, and someone says, right, here's a rocket. You know, I was this incredible gift, and willing to do it, but not in a flaky way, but in a really clear, determined way. So it was beautiful to conceive and grow uh, that baby out of love. We had the fabulous home birth in a house with no telephone, no hot water. Um, We had a group of, we had one gay guy there taking photos who'd never seen a vagina before, (laughs) never mind a, a vagina delivering a baby. I had uh, several of my friends; they were women who were never going to birth. We had a midwife; she was fantastic. Anyway, it was an incredible, wonderful experience That's, that you can only do once in your life. Who appeared out of this? Oh, we had another excitement. We had a little boy together, uh, <laughs> whose name is Tane, and Johnny caught him, which was you know fantastic. And there've been many uh, parents who have been the catcher of their baby as it's born, and. Because he was a New Zealander, he had this fishhook, bone fishhook. And as he was leaning forward and as Tane was born, you know how their hands are all tight together and then they usually, once they get out of the body, they open up and expand and then they come back. And as he expanded and came back, he caught the fishhook in his hand, which is the sort of story of, it's a Maori legend about the fishhook in New Zealand. And so they were really, you know, really bonded from that moment.
1: You say, Zenith, although you hadn't intended to, you'd fallen in love with Johnny in the time you spent together. Did you think, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should stay together, the three of us? Well, I do have to counter that with that we both had other
0: lovers at the time. He had male lovers and a female lover who came to the birth and... Uh, this is very North Coast. Senate. It's very North Coast, but it's really, you know, it's, you're not always the person that you think you are. And sometimes you, when a set of circumstances arise, you can become something much more magnificent than you ever thought you could. I was growing beyond what I could have imagined for my own life. I, I was becoming a person that I could not imagine. Unfortunately, that was a good person rather than a downhill slide. So Tane was born and i after a couple of months i ran out of milk and so my part in that was complete and he did ask me to stay and i said no it's just not it's just not w- what i'm looking for in my life right now you know i've kept my part of the deal we had a great relationship I have an ongoing relationship also with tane where uh, as a child it was sort of like being an a godparent or an odd parent so I would come and go, and he would come to me if he wanted to. And that, that worked pretty well. And I, he's been a great teacher for me, Tani.
1: How did you start working with death and with people who were dying? So really I was watching lots of my friends die through the
0: HIV crisis and, and the epidemic that that was. And it was incredible to be part of that, but to be in that sub-community... And that family. What happened for me when I moved to the North Coast, as well as having the baby and then carrying on with my own life? I met an extraordinary amount of really interesting, deep, rich people. And some of them gave something to me in their presence, in their conversation, something that I thought, whatever it is they're giving to me, whatever it is that makes me feel that good, I want to have that so I can give that to others, so that people feel like that in my presence. And it took me a while to work out they all had a spiritual path. And one of those people was a woman, Sylvia Morrow, who I loved. I was in my 30s then. She was in her 50s. She was married with two gorgeous daughters. And she died suddenly in her garden. She was outside doing Uh, yoga in the morning and she had a brain aneurysm and she died and her daughter rang me to tell me and I went to see her husband we went to the hospital he identified her body and while we were there I was stroking her head I'd never seen a dead body before and as I was stroking her head I felt this incredible experience and watched her sort of life force and I'm not prone to things like this, and I've only had it once even though I've seen a lot of dead bodies now. Uh, through, uh, her life force left her body through my hands, sort of like a vapour, a bit like when you're filling up gas at the petrol station. You, you can't see it, but you can see the effect. Anyway, as we walked out, I said to Richard, her husband you know do you want me I could hear her voice somewhere in my mind saying if Zen's got a handle on it it will all be okay more because of the young daughters who are teenagers so
1: I said to him we could do this ourselves we could do what ourselves oh, take
0: care of her body and organize the funeral
1: why do you think you had that impulse to suggest
0: that I don't know I don't know the answer to that I must say yes to life, and so now I must say yes to death. So it just that thought arose, and I expressed it, probably because I was working in law by then, and I had an understanding that everybody in authority is just someone doing a job, and everything's a procedural chain of paperwork. And I love paperwork, I've got this quirky part of my personality <laughs> that loves filling in forms. And I've also got that buck, the system approach so if someone says to me you can't do that I'm like no that's not the right answer and so the thought of bucking the system on death and that whole funeral industry was very exciting (laughs) so what was the next step well I drove home that day and on the way home I drove through Bangalore and there was a little funeral directors that I'd never seen before and I went in and said hi my name's Zenith, my best friend Sylvia's just died. We want to do it ourselves. Can you tell us? And he said yes, which is an incredible response from a funeral director. He showed me the forms. I could see that they were a piece of cake, and they still are a piece of cake to fill in. And he gave me a stretcher. And then he made this this offer where he said, uh, if you want... I'll come and support you in case you run into trouble. I won't interfere, but I'll be there, which he did. And we, I managed the coroner, the hospital. We built a coffin. We put her in the coffin. We drove her in our own car. We went to the crematorium. We did the ceremony. We pushed her in the cremator. And I went outside and did a big yes to life and yes to death and yes to doing that well and yes this is my 37th birthday and then other people started asking me to do that for them so I don't have a calling for death I didn't look for it it offered itself to me and I just said yes when and why did you start using the term
1: death walker to describe what you do
0: Well, when I first started, there wasn't a term for people like me, even though it's a very traditional, you know, timeless role in every community, someone would have held the death knowledge, just like someone always held the birth knowledge, usually women. So then after some time, I realized that what I was doing was I was walking that journey with them. I was accompanying them in their walking towards their own death and also the family walking with that person and then in their own journey of bereavement. My whole work is about empowering people to do that as well as they can, whatever that is for them.
1: You'd been doing this work as a death walker for around five years when the phone rang and it was about Johnny. What had happened? That's right. At home
0: one morning, I'd spoken to him the night before. We had friends visiting from New Zealand. And the phone rang and someone said, Johnny's dead. Can you get home before Tane gets home from school? So I, I was still in my pyjamas because we were all sitting around talking. I went in. I got changed. I managed to maintain the phone conversation. I went back out to my friends. I said, I have to go. Johnny's died. And we drove to Brunswick from Byron. He had killed himself in a very clear way. And he'd left a note for Tane, which was also very clear. And with that, he'd said on the bottom of it, you'll be better off with her, which meant me. And so, But Tane
1: hadn't gone to school that day. He'd gone surfing. So you were trying to get to to Johnny and and his body before Tane got home? In order to greet Tane and then
0: make that introduction to that experience for him. But life doesn't play out like that. And so when I got there, Johnny's body was in the garden and Tane was kneeling over him. And so he looked up and said he was 13 and a half. And he looked up and said, am I coming with you? And I said, yes. And in that moment, again, it was another moment. I was looking at Johnny, had Tana under my
1: arm, and I was like, this so wasn't in the plan. Was there any question in your mind that you would then take over the care of your son or...?
0: Tane had a big life and he was very connected to a lot of people, especially a lot of the men who were surfers who had children the same age as him and had probably much closer relationships to him than me. Several of them said, he can come and live with us. We'll just have him as part of our family. But I knew that in that moment, because I'd spent so long working with death, seeing, understanding, learning so much on a subtle layer... That He could do that later, but in this moment, it was really important for him to have family, and at that point, I was all he had, and so there was no
1: doubt in my mind in that moment. As you say, you'd been more like a a godparent, an odd parent to Tane. How did you work out how to live with one another? Well, of course, so you have to look at it. He's a a 13-and-a-half-year-old boy.
0: He's full of testosterone. He was already quite a guy of his own, and then... His father, who is really for him was like losing his mother and his father's only real parent, had killed themselves. And so he was full of grief and confusion and so many emotions. So he was thrashing around like teenagers do. We had had lots of battles. I cried a lot. He apologised a lot. But one of the great things that I did, perhaps the only great thing that I did was say, okay, Tane, this is it. I'm very trusting. So I need to know that you will only tell me the truth. You don't have to tell me everything, but I am asking you with everything I have, please don't lie to me. Because I could see, probably just like the headmistress could see in me, that I could see in him that he could go either way from this experience. And what I wanted him to do was go in a way that was going to be a good choice for him, which is exactly what happened. But what was so great was that he did learn to tell the truth and he learned to tell the truth even when the situation was tricky. And I just think that is such a great gift to a relationship but also to a person.
1: Have your three kids ever met one another? They have all met. Just before Johnny
0: died, I went back to England for the first time after 15 years to see my parents and my children. The boys were now 21 and 19. And I'd written to my mother and said, look, is it going to be okay for you if either of us die and we haven't seen each other? And she said, no, that's not going to be okay for me. We're chain smokers and we can't fly. Can you come to England? I said, okay, I'll come. So I I came, I went very quickly, within a very short amount, like within a week or so, I flew to England. So I saw my parents, I saw, who were now elderly, I saw my children who, last time I'd seen them were six and four, now they're 21, 19. And we all talked about it. I apologized to them for the pain and suffering that they had experienced because of my decision. But I said, but I can't apologize for the action of leaving because I still feel that was the best thing for all of us. And they said, well, you know, we really like who we are and we are these people because of that experience. And that's when they said, we told people you were dead. You know, and I said, I can't make up for anything that's gone. The ball's in your court now. You can make a choice. I've got a life. You've got a life. If we want to share that life going forward from here, we can but it's your choice now and they said yeah we like the look of you you look interesting (laughs) because the rest of my family is not so interesting and exactly that and we did we moved on and my mother said to me next year is my 70th and our 50th wedding anniversary it's my dream that my whole family will be together and I realize now it was so painful for my mother while I was gone those 15 years And so the following year, I was planning to go back, but suddenly now I had this uh, 14-year-old boy. So I wrote to them again and said, Hi, you remember I told you about the other child that I had? Well, his father's just died. Now he lives with me, so I'm going to bring him. If you've got any problem, let me know. And they said, No, just bring him. So we returned, and the three boys got each other. So full of respect for Jodie and Todd. They embraced Tane as a brother. They took him on. They all spent one night out partying. It was an incredible moment of if you live long enough, all things are possible to come round. When we got on that plane, I felt like my whole circle was complete, except for this one tiny slither, which was Richard. Your husband. The father of the boys, because I hadn't seen him, and I rang him. And... I said, can we meet? So after 30 years, we met. And I said, oh, my God, you've turned into your father because we were the age our parents were when I left. We've gone from 24 to 54. And he said, and you've turned into your mother, which I thought was fine because my mom was so lovely. And I wouldn't have always said I was such a lovely person. Anyway, I asked him the questions about what had happened. I said, this is my take of what happened. It was so calm. We discussed it. And I want to know whether I've created that in my own mind to make myself feel better. And he said, no, that's my memory of it too. And in that moment, that whole circle closed. That is a complete wrap on my life. And I felt very fortunate that everyone
1: was so generous in that experience because that is not the case for everybody. Zenith, it's been quite remarkable to hear your story. Thank you so much for sharing it so generously on Conversations. You're welcome. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.